Hello, and welcome to the Woking College History Podcast. Socialist realism was the archetypal art form of communist Russia, the regulated works of art which were in keeping with communist ideology. One of Stalin's agencies, the Union of Writers, described it as the definitive Soviet artistic method. For example, paintings were no longer about beauty and expression, but of real-life scenes accessible to the masses. It is important to distinguish between social and socialist realism. Social realism is a broad term referring to a form of art which depicts working-class, realistic scenes, for example, a fisherman or a farmer. Socialist realism refers specifically to the Stalinist version of this, which was tightly regulated and allowed very little scope for artistic thought or improvisation. Although the two terms are often used synonymously, this isn't necessarily the case. Social realism isn't an official art form, more so a genre, and can be seen all over the world throughout history. Socialist realism was the predominant art form of the Stalinist Soviet world and was legally enforced as the only accepted form of art for around 50 years. For more analysis, you could try to search the internet for the two terms and see how other people have described the differences. In this podcast, we'll be explaining the impact of socialist realism on the different art forms and its role within communist Russia. The regulations affected literature, art, cinema, theatre and music. It's a prime example of the constrictions Stalin forced upon the newly communist Russia during this period. It was also of paramount importance to Stalin's propaganda strategy and was a key part in the structure of the totalitarian state. But first of all, it is important to identify why art was an area of society that was worth controlling. Art in the forms of paintings and sculptures, film, theatre, literature and music, which is a vast proportion of the populace, These various areas fall under the category of mass communication as part of a totalitarian state, which, like all the other sections, must be controlled completely in order to achieve total domination. Without the rigorous socialisation of art in the newly formed communist state of Russia, there would surely have been many conflicting messages to the ones provided by the state, causing a lack of stable control and disillusionment among the people. We will now explain how each art form was regimented to the strict government laws and explain what implications this gave. Socialist realism was most apparent in painted and sculpted art. Before the realist movement, art often contained the idyllic, romantic and exaggerated. The only real restrictions were from artistic fashions. Pre-socialist realism art appealed to the eye and to emotions, rather than focusing on the harsh realities of life. During the conversion to socialist realism, attitudes changed drastically. Art focused on real-life, everyday scenes. Most did so because of a growing enthusiasm for such works, Others did so because government regulation would reject anything else. Either that or they'd have to give up their profession. Something else to bear in mind is that socialist realism aimed to further the goals of socialism. Try and remember this throughout the podcast, because it'll help explain why socialist realism was considered important. From the early 1930s at the beginning of the movement, art was quickly swamped with paintings of tractors, hard-working farmers and contented peasants enjoying communist life. Vera Mukina famously designed a giant sculpture depicting two iconic communist characters striving towards a collective goal. Imposing works of art were encouraged as they promoted communism in a grand and impressive way. 
Famous paintings from the period included those of collected farms, new tractors and cooperative workers, all of which portrayed the efficiency of a communist state. However, similarly to propaganda, this gave a biased and inaccurate view of what was actually going on in Russia. As we'll find out from other podcasts, standard of living in Russia was low, collectivization was largely unsuccessful, and incentives for hard work were few. Think for a moment. If Stalin had let art go unregulated, what would the knock-on effects have been on the image of communism, bearing in mind its actual successes and failures? Also, if people had seen the real situation that Stalin was creating, would they have been so supportive of it? Totalitarianism relies on people believing the universal message, as well as just obeying commands. If Stalin's government had allowed art to go unregulated, then conflicting messages would have been conveyed to the masses. This would weaken communism, both in principle and by offering alternative views to those that were state-provided. Stalin liked art that was easily accessible to the working class and uneducated. Whether people were illiterate or not, they could understand simple pictures. Before socialist realism, it was often the elite and highly educated that could appreciate art. But now, a communist message would be spread to all people through paintings and sculptures. Art was transformed from a vent of free expression to a communist propaganda tool. This was just one of the many ways in which Stalin asserted his authority over free thought and pushed Stalinism into, into his developing totalitarian state. change to socialist realism was largely ineffective within cinema. Stalin himself enjoyed many Hollywood films. Westerns and Charlie Chaplin titles were some of his favourites. He enjoyed various works of film from his private cinema in his country lodge at the, and at the Kremlin. There was the belief that cinema could be hugely influ influential, especially among the impressionable working class. Ironically, this led to overly strict regulations, which meant that most Soviet cinema was generic and lifeless and gained pitiful popularity compared to the Western imports. Soviet-made films came under control of the Politburo's economic department. As you'd expect, they were unimaginative, not least because they were made in conjunction with Stalin's idea to increase production of documentaries on the five-year plans. They were supposed to be understood by millions, but they were made to such strict guidelines, approved by Stalin, that they ended up being too unpopular to have any tenable success. How damaging do you think not having control over cinema was to Stalin's goals in terms of propaganda and indoctrination? It turns out that there is very little evidence to say that control over cinema was as important as initially thought. The idea that a communist film industry was vital was proved to be an exaggeration. The effect of Western exposure through film wasn't nearly as damaging as Stalin thought it would be, as they didn't contain obvious, an obvious insinuation that capitalism was more acceptable than communism. Overall, the failure to influence cinema in a major way proved insignificant to socialist realism as a whole. The successes in other aspects of art were much more important. It could be argued that this was because cinema is much more of an entertainment-based pastime than strongly cultural, influential in a political sense.
The RAPP, the Russian Association of Proletariat Writers, were the original body concerned with controlling the output of Soviet writers. They sought to minimise deviations from socialist themes in literature. Used as a propaganda tool, they made sure all works of literature were supportive of the Stalinist regime. They were important to socialist realism as a whole, because the harsh reality of Soviet communism was sure... Like many writers, the distinguished author, Boris Pasternak, was so horrified by the atrocities of collectivisation that he was unable to write creatively for a year afterwards. Had the RAPP not been such an intimidating organisation, then these same atrocities could have been published to the world. Despite its initial successes, the RAPP was deemed to have fulfilled its purpose by Stalin, who replaced it with the Union of Soviet Writers, which was a much more diverse group. Surprisingly, it even included non-proletarian and non-party writers. The head of the organisation was Maxim Gorky, who him himself was not affiliated with the party. One would assume this less socialist membership would encourage more imaginative writing. However, many authors, like the aforementioned Boris Pasternak and their poet Anna Ak- Akhmatova, practiced the genre of silence, meaning that they stopped writing altogether. Socialist realist novels were given uninspired titles like Cement and The Great Conveyor Belt, and indeed, historian Robert Service said that no great work of literature was published in the 1930s and all artistic figures went in fear of their lives. There are two key points that you should take from this section, the first being that the dissolution of the RAPP is an early example of Stalin's inability to trust anything for any length of time. Stalin removed the RAPP before it could develop into too powerful an organisation. This mistrust reached its peak during the Great Purge some years later. The second key point is that the actual outcome of socialist realism in literature was that the writers either had to conform to the restrictive guidelines and not allow their imaginations to flourish, or join many others in the genre of silence. The effect on the masses was mediocre. They weren't exposed to any material that might harm the image of socialism, but at the same time they weren't enthused by the often mundane works of socialist authors. To explain the impact of socialist realism on the theatre, we are going to look at the case study of Zevalod Meyerhold, who was a renowned theatre director until 1939. He welcomed the artistic revolution and claimed it was the beginning of a theatrical October, as in the October Revolution in 1917. Despite this, in 1937 he wrote a play based on the novel How the Steel Was Tempered, which graphically depicted horrors never seen before from the Civil War. Unfortunately for Meyerhold, the RAPP, who were the Russian Association of Proletariat Writers, deemed the play inappropriate because of its overriding theme of genuine realism rather than socialist realism. This was because it depicted the Civil War in a balanced, realistic manner, rather than a way which Stalin would approve of. Pravda, which was the National Communist newspaper, attacked Mayerold's work, failing to show the problems which concerned everyday Soviet citizens. It would appear that Mayerold's original support for the theatrical October waned once his artistic imagination was being restricted. After continued criticism, his theatre was closed in January 1938. Mayerold was accused of formalism and even openly admitted at a conference in 1939 that he had preferred to be called so than be a pawn of socialism. He went on to say, In your efforts to eradicate formalism, you have destroyed art. He was arrested a few days later, tortured until he confessed to being a foreign spy and then put to death in January 1940. 
This type of story is typical of artists living under Stalinist regime. So what do case studies like this tell us about socialist realism? Well, many artists were keen to adopt socialist realism in its early days. Like everyone, they got caught up in the excitement of revolution. But it wasn't long before they felt the constrictions of the state-approved art form and either rebelled, unwillingly conformed, or gave up their art completely. As everyone knows, music has a huge impact upon people's emotions. Therefore, one would think it vital to have control over the musical output of the USSR for socialist realism to have a more magnified effect. Indeed, socialist realism limited musical output in the following ways. Music was to be joyous and positive, symphonies were to be composed in a major key, and folk songs and dances about the onward marching of Soviet man were accepted as the sounds of socialist music. The impact was most obvious in the lyrics of songs, as they could contain direct messages and stories within them. There was a more subtle impact on symphonies, which contained no lyrics, although there was still a noticeable transition into more optimistic, enthusiastic melodies. However, remember that music was much less accessible than it is nowadays. It wasn't a case of just downloading the latest communist track. It was more what was played in local theatres, public ceremonies and events, or very, very rarely, sold on records. Be careful to not overestimate how much music was sold on records, though. The five-year plans caused consumer goods to suffer. If you've forgotten what the five-year plans were, they were the economic policies designed to quickly regain economic standing in the developed world. Socialist realism in music is more about making people feel better about their communist lives in general than explicitly spreading the Soviet propaganda. The music that has been playing throughout this podcast is an example of Soviet music during the time of socialist realism. As you'll hear, it is grand and enthusiastic, and we've no doubt made you feel somewhat better about the communist regime. Thank you for listening to the Woken College History Passport. If you'd like more information about Woken College, please go to www.woking.ac.uk. Thank you.